0: Today on Clear Approach, I get shot in the arm, we talk about trypanophobia and what that means, and finally, we get high with Dr. Emily Stratton, talking about high-altitude sickness. All this and more coming up on the Mayo Clinic Clear Approach podcast, your home for aerospace medicine that matters. Well, Welcome back, everybody. This is Dr. Van, your medical co-pilot as always, bringing you the Mayo Clinic Clear Approach podcast. Well, what a crazy and topsy-turvy two to three weeks it's been in our country since the last podcast. And that, frankly, is about as close as I am going to get to that topic. But I do want to say for all the listeners out there, I hope that you've all been able to stay safe and healthy and that you've got some quiet time in the air in the cockpit. I really wish I could say that's the case for me, but unfortunately, I haven't been able to get out that much lately. The weather out here in the Midwest has been so uncooperative lately that its Twitter account was disabled. For the most part, it's either been cloudy, or snowing, or cloudy and snowing. I was fortunately able to get out for at least a few touch and goes during a brief window of good weather one afternoon. Of course, everybody and their grandmother had the same exact idea in the county, And, well, let's just say it was a good lesson in concentration and communication. But the weather wasn't the only thing that's been holding me back lately from getting up in the air. The other thing is that I finally got my first dose of the COVID vaccine. And no, this is not a podcast of the paranormal. I am still alive. Told you so. So as I've mentioned before, I actually do get to see patients in person. And so my vaccination window got pushed up. And I got an email one afternoon saying they were ready to stick me in the arm. And just knowing how hard it's been for folks to get vaccinated lately, I took the opportunity and headed straight to the vaccination site. So, how did it go? As for the shot itself, it really wasn't any different than any other vaccine. A.k.a. it sucked. But really no different than, say, getting the influenza vaccine. There's no strange, mysterious, green, glowing, needle or clouds of vapor and dry ice pouring out all over the floor, I do have two points of advice to offer. First, make sure you wear some clothing that is easy for you to get your arm out of. Say, not wearing, for example, a sports coat, a button-down shirt, and a bow tie. I had always promised myself that I never again would be standing in front of a bunch of people shirtless with a bow tie around my neck, but I guess that's life. Second piece of advice, don't plan anything important for the days after your vaccine. Now, in full disclaimer, if you look in the dictionary for the phrase man flu, you will find my photograph. But really, I'm not the only one that has felt pretty awful after getting the vaccine. I was pretty down and out for about 24 to 36 hours, and it kind of felt like I had a really mild flu or bad cold. As we discussed in the last podcast, The FAA was requiring a 48 hour no fly period after each vaccine dose. And I was actually scheduled to fly the day after my vaccine. And no, I didn't schedule that on purpose. It was because my vaccine appointment got pushed forward. And I could definitely tell you that I would not have been in a good position to fly the way I felt that day after the vaccine. So do yourself a favor when it comes time to get the shot dress right, plan right. And then be safe, right? So instead of the news today, I wanted to spend time on another vaccine-related topic. Something that is undoubtedly on the mind of many of us, but hardly ever talked about. No, I'm not talking about the Seattle Seahawks offense this year, but I'm talking about trypanophobia. So what is trypanophobia? No, it's not the fear of tripping. It's the fear of needles. I already know what you're thinking. Yeah, 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 big deal. Who's afraid of needles, right? Yeah, you're not fooling anybody. Trypanophobia is an official psychiatric diagnosis. And this condition affects quite a number of people, almost 50 million by latest estimates. If you have children, you are probably not surprised at all that this is very common amongst youth. But it's not just kids that are affected. About 20 to 50% of adolescents also have trypanophobia, as well as 20 to 30% of adults. And in fact, it's estimated that almost 20% of patients who have needle phobia will actually avoid any form of medical care due to their fears. So when the COVID vaccine came out, with not one, but two required shots, Individuals with trypanophobia were understandably less than thrilled. On top of that, when you add in all of the social pressure of getting vaccinated, and even systems being developed to offer quick verification of vaccine status for employers and travel, well, this current situation is a perfect storm for patients with this fear. And I'm going to be the first one to admit, us providers in medicine have not made this problem easier. What is our usual remedy for a patient that is expressing fear over getting an injection? It's suck it up, buttercup. But fortunately, this way of thinking about injections is old school. Please know that you have every right to be nervous about getting an injection. So when it comes time to get injections in the future, whether it be the COVID vaccine, or Novocaine in your mouth, or getting a flu shot don't be afraid to seek the comfort that you deserve. If you suffer from trypanophobia, talk to your healthcare provider and their staff about your feelings. In my opinion, we should just be happy that you want to get the vaccine in the first place. All right, so that's nice and all, but you're probably wondering, Dr. Van, how do I really get over my fears and get this shot? What can I do on the day of the event? So here are a couple of pointers. First, For once in your life, don't be afraid to disconnect. There are a few things in life that can be truly worsened by thinking about them too much. Like the amortized cost of private aircraft ownership. And I recommend that you completely distract yourself when it's time to get your shot. I often try to do this by telling somewhat of a complicated story or even a joke to the person that's giving me the injection. During this vaccination, I believe I said, Do you know that I really despise ducks? every time I feel one, I feel foul. Now that I think about it, that may have made my shot feel worse, but I digress. Second piece of advice, definitely don't look at it. And yes, I don't care how tough you are, it's okay to close your eyes in front of everyone. Honestly, if you look over at the needle and you say, oh fun, that's not a good sign. And finally, don't be afraid to talk to your medical provider about your fears. Sometimes medications are given to help with anxiety related to medical treatments, such as getting an MRI and even injections. That being said, don't try to take things in your own hands and say, use like alcohol to make things go easier. That will just end up in you getting banned from the vaccine site. Also, even just two normal drinks can interfere with your blood clotting, and make it easier for you to bleed after the shot. And in the end, when it's time to get your vaccine, allow yourself to be human. The fear of getting poked by sharp objects is natural. Honestly, it's much more worrisome if a patient loves getting shots. For today's second medical topic, I have listened to the help of my colleague, Dr. Emily Stratton, Dr. Stratton is our Aerospace Medicine Fellow here at the Mayo Clinic. In addition to our routine clinical services here, we also are helping train the future leaders in aviation medicine, like Dr. Stratton. Dr. Stratton is fully trained in emergency medicine and has experience with high-altitude sickness, including at the Everest Base Camp. Without further ado, welcome Dr. Stratton.
1: Hello, Dr. Vanishka Shorn. Thank you for having me. I'll be speaking about high-altitude illness today, a little bit about myself. My name is Emily Stratton, and I am a physician and the current Aerospace Medicine Fellow at the Mayo Clinic. I did my residency training in emergency medicine in upstate New York prior to starting fellowship. During residency, I had the amazing opportunity to study wilderness medicine and learn firsthand the effects of high altitude while hiking to Mount Everest Base Camp and visiting remote Himalayan clinics, including the Everest ED. This took us around three weeks to hike to base camp and we experienced the effects of high altitude illness and took care of hikers suffering from more severe high altitude illness along the way. So enough about me. What is high altitude illness? It can be thought of as a spectrum, which include acute mountain sickness, which goes by the acronym AMS, high-altitude cerebral edema, or HACE, as it is commonly referred to, and high-altitude pulmonary edema, or HAPE, as it is commonly referred to. Some of those terms are mouthfuls, but we will learn more about them today. Usually, you start developing symptoms of high-altitude illness when you travel above 8,000 feet. We could compare this to the altitude of Mount Rainier from my home state, which is around 14,000 feet. The peak of Mount Everest, in comparison, is around 29,000 feet. Denver has an altitude of around 5,000 feet. People can live at high altitudes, however, not quite as high as the peak of Mount Everest. We will learn about how later in this talk. So back to the symptoms of high-altitude illness. You could use a research tool called the Lake Louise criteria to diagnose someone with high altitude illness. But in brief, high altitude illness includes, as we have spoken about already, AMS, HACE and HAPE. An easy way to remember AMS is to liken it to a hangover. It can affect your GI system causing nausea, vomiting and loss of appetite, fatigue, dizziness and difficulty sleeping, as well as vivid dreams which I learned firsthand about. This is a difficult situation to be in, because if you are hiking and using a lot of energy, you need calories to keep up your strength. But the GI symptoms and lack of hunger can really make keeping up with your calories very difficult. Okay, next on the spectrum, HACE, or high altitude cerebral edema. This is considered end-stage AMS and involve severe altered mental status or confusion, along with the symptoms of AMS as above. And what you don't want at altitude when the technical aspects of the hike are becoming more important is someone who is confused. This can lead to an increase in deaths. Finally, we have high altitude pulmonary edema or HAPE. You need to have at least two of the following symptoms and two of the following signs to be diagnosed with HAPE. The symptoms include shortness of breath, cough, chest tightness and weakness with the signs being crackles or wheezing, blue discoloration of parts of your body, which is a sign of severely low oxygen, increased rate of breathing and severe increase in heart rate. Now that we know about these symptoms, how do some people live at high altitude and how do you prevent high altitude illness? One word, acclimatization which is a form of adaptation to these low oxygen levels. In order to not develop high altitude illness, you want to ascend slowly and take some days at certain altitudes so that your body gets used to the altitude changes. You can also take acetazolamide, a medication we discussed in a moment prior to ascending with some minimal decreases in high altitude illness. Some physiological changes that occur at increasing altitude include faster breathing and heart rate, and your heart actually beats harder than usual. Over time, and in those that live at high altitude, you could develop a higher red blood cell count, increased vascularity, which is an increase in the number of blood vessels in the body, and an increase in the number of mitochondria within your cells, which, as you can probably remember from high school biology, is the powerhouse of the cell. So, how do you treat high altitude illness? Well, the first thing we always recommend includes stopping ascent. This can only make matters worse. So descending is recommended. If this isn't possible or you are severely ill, you could be given supplemental oxygen in certain medications. You could even use a portable hyperbaric chamber, if you had one, to increase the pressure similar to what you would experience at sea level. Since at altitude, you are at a lower pressure, which decreases the symptoms of high-altitude illness. So what medications do we use and how do they work? Well, we could really get into the weeds here, but I will give you all a brief review of the common medications used in high-altitude illness. They include acetazolamide and steroids. So remember how increasing altitude can cause you to breathe faster? Since you're exhaling carbon dioxide, which is an acidic substance, your body becomes more alkalotic and tries to decrease the loss of more acid to keep your body functioning at a normal level. In order to decrease how much your body is trying to react to this loss of acid, the drug, acetazolamide helps you to keep on breathing fast and can help to accelerate acclimatization, although the exact mechanism of action still remains unclear. There are some downsides to acetazolamide for sure, and these include this really terrible tingling in your hands and feet like all of your limbs have gone to sleep. So if the insomnia from the AMS isn't affecting you, this drug can definitely be helping to keep you up at night. You can take acetazolamide at a lower dose than you would in treating high-altitude illness in order to prevent high-altitude illness. Next, steroids, including dexamethasone, can be used. Although the exact mechanism of action is still being theorized, this can be a treatment for severe high-altitude illness, but I will not go into this one as much. There have been some studies on ibuprofen as well, but the debate is still out. Some other treatments suggested have have been sildenafil, which some of you may recognize uh, by its other name, Viagra, ginkgo biloba, and a type of blood pressure lowering medication. So in summary, if you're at altitude and think you or a friend are developing high altitude illness, stop ascending. Descend if possible, especially if you are experiencing severe symptoms, and know that there are medications out there that may help to prevent high-altitude illness, or even treat it, but they do not work, as well as descending. Thanks everyone for listening, and stay safe and healthy during this season.
0: Well, thank you everyone for listening today, as always. I hope you've enjoyed the last few episodes that have been more medically oriented than the previous episodes. That being said, now that the holidays are finally behind us, and I'm not in a Midwest pandemic surge, we do have a very awesome set of guests coming up in our future podcasts. So don't turn that dial. I guess uh, I guess I can still say that at this point in technology. You know what I mean. As always, don't forget that this podcast is an offshoot of our Mayo Clinic Clear Approach Consulting Service. If you have a question about your flying and medical health, you can log on to our website at mayoclinic.org and send either me or my colleagues a message. And we'll usually get back to you in about 24 to 48 hours. If you have any comments for the show or would like to be featured on the show yourself, just visit us at mayoclinic.blueberry.net, that's blubrr dot and send me a message. Until next time, this is Dr. Van, your medical co-pilot, wishing you great flying and even better health.